A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. I didn't want to come, and I don't want to be here. I'm the son of an Atlanta City police officer. Uh, My cousin is an Atlanta City police officer, and my other cousin, East Point police officer. And I got a lot of love and respect for police officers, down to the original eight police officers in Atlanta that even after becoming police had to dress in a YMCA because white officers didn't want to get dressed with niggers. And here we are 80 years later. I watched a white officer assassinate a black man. And I know that tore your heart out. And I know it's crippling. And I have nothing positive to say in this moment because I don't want to be here. But I'm responsible to be here because it wasn't just Dr. King and people dressed nicely who marched and protested to progress this city and so many other cities. It was people like my grandmother, people like my aunts and uncles. So I'm duty bound to be here to simply say that it is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization. And now is the time to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. That was rapper Killer Mike in Atlanta this weekend. Isn't it amazing that the speech the president should have given was given by a rapper? And the speech that you'd expect a rapper to give about shooting and looting was given by the president. It has been a very strange week, a momentous week, a week that maybe will change. Certainly the American presidential election will certainly dictate what's going on in the United States over the course of the next few months and may well 
change American history. Johnny boy, how are you? I'm good. I am really disturbed by this. I know that we, like, this has been building up for months. Well, actually, since 2016, it's been building to this. But I do feel that a line has been crossed here. And I think the hypocrisy, and as you were saying before about the, not the Republican playbook, but Trump's playbook and Steve Bannon's playbook is, this is a big part of it. This is it. I mean, this is the culture war that Bannon wanted that Trump wanted, that they've been doing everything in their power to engineer. And you know, what really amazes me is, and the Republican Party are not without guilt here. Of course they're not, they're silent. Because they came in behind Trump, Yeah. right? Now, of course, Trump didn't cause this. He didn't do this. But his reaction, John, has been nothing. I mean, again, he's the worst type of personality to have in power at the moment because he's a malignant narcissist. Yeah. And malignant narcissists make everything about themselves. Yeah. So he doesn't see the big picture. He doesn't see the race issue, the race riots. He's basically, this is about me. It's not my fault. And I'm going to sort this out with the National Guard. Now, America's been here before with the National Guard and race riots. Yeah. It seems to me that the summer will be a summer where American cities are burning. That's what. Oh, I think so. I think there are, we're heading into that summer. And when you say about we've been here before, Trump was quoting directly the chief of police, wasn't it, of Miami the, from 1967. And, and a segregationist character called Wallace. Yes. Who wanted to run an election in 67. And you remember, 67 is when the civil rights movement is beginning to atrophy Martin Luther King is still alive, but is about to be assassinated. Yeah. Bobby Kennedy is about to be assassinated. And it's funny, I was listening to probably the best protest album ever written was written by Marvin Gaye. Right. What's going on? Yeah, Written fantastic. in 1971 by Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye had been a kind of a pop star. He'd been a Motown pop star. And he goes away and he says, I've got to write something political. And his brother, Frankie, had just come back from Vietnam. That's He'd right. done his tour of yeah. duty. yeah where black soldiers were much more likely to get killed at the beginning than white soldiers. And his brother comes back and he's fought from America for America and he comes back to segregation, to unemployment, to police brutality. And the whole album's about what's going on. Explain yeah. what's going on, brother. Yeah. That is 50 years ago and nothing's yeah. changed. Yeah, nothing has changed. What also amazes me is it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when the fully kitted out armed militia, white militia, essentially marched into the Capitol building of Michigan, fully armed, nothing was said. Nothing was said. And then you, you know, a couple of weeks later, the guy gets killed, George Floyd. Yeah. And, you know, and people are out, rightly so, protesting. In comes the National Guard, rubber bullets, the full shebang. And then, of course, they arrest the CNN guy live on telly. Because he's a black reporter. Because he was a black reporter. And he was arrested before the cop in question was arrested. Which is, wow. Which actually okay. speaks volumes. Yeah, no, it's it's, sort of, it's something that, you know, we've talked about before. But the, the issue of race in America is so live. It's so malignant so malevolent and it's it's oppressively present 
yeah. in the United States in a way that it's not in any other country to the same extent. The legacy of slavery, the sense that the black community is not only oppressed and downtrodden, but that the police force who should be protecting them yeah. are actually imperiling them. Like if I was a black dad in the States with teenage kids, right? You'd be petrified about them going out. Not because you think they're going to get beaten up, but it's you true. think they're going to meet a cop. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have no real idea where this is going to end, but I think what it does is it frames the election. Now, think about what's happening, right? You have 40 million people unemployed in the yeah. United States, newly yeah. unemployed. Many of them are going to be black. They're disproportionate, right? Working in the retail trade, working in hospitality, yeah. et cetera, yeah, right? Yeah. You also have a disproportionate amount of black people working frontline in hospitals, right? In the frontline jobs and porters and driving ambulances, things. So their sense of being oppressed, their sense of pain for COVID mm. is much more heightened. And yet, amazingly, you have black rappers who are normally inciting this stuff. Yeah. Coming out and saying, don't loot, don't burn, see the big picture, mobilize, get organized, do it legitimately, do it through the election, do it through the vote. I mean, it'll be fascinating to see. I mean, one of the big things was Barack Obama got the black vote out. Mm. There is a sense that Biden might get the black vote out, but something like this, if the black community can mobilize and get their people out, they can change the American election. Yeah. They can actually dump Trump. Well, I would sincerely hope so. And just one last thing, I thought it was very telling that you look across nearly every major city in Europe and there was major protests. Well, it's interesting. You know, you think 2020, you think COVID, you think what's the long-term or the short-term ramifications? It's this combination of you have lots of people unemployed, lots of people looking with fear to the future, mm. lots of people on social media, and social media heightening people's sense of what's going on and sense of they're witnessing something real. Yeah. And you have a long summer coming up, a long, long summer. And it, the scenes from American cities would suggest that this is only the start. Absolutely. And speaking of social media, this is also coming off the back of that debacle between Twitter and Trump and Twitter censoring Trump, which is... You know, this is unheard of, but the sooner Twitter get on with them and take them off the platform, the better, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but of course, that's a key, it's a key election It's an instrument. Vehicle. It's yeah, an so, instrument. Yeah, yeah. It's an instrument. But we're, you know, we're going to move on with the podcast, but it's just, I don't know how you feel about this. I don't know how you reacted to this, but for me and for John, we were chatting about this over the weekend. It seems that this is the defining moment of 2020 for the United States. And this will have profound, profound ramifications for politics, for economics, for society, and for culture from here on. Let's talk about, since we aren't touched on social media there, let's talk about what Facebook and Twitter and all those big tech companies, their angle on coming out of the lockdown, 
and going back to work. This whole going back to work. Going business. back to work and work from home. Well, I think what we should even stand back and take more altitude this week. Oh, okay. And talk about the reset. The opportunity that COVID provides, that all the, the idea, if you told me last year, last January, if we'd sat here, you'd said, we will close down the economy in the face of a virus. And we will close every shop, every restaurant, every bar. People will stay at home. I would say that's not possible, mm. but it has happened. Yeah. So consequently, it shifts the dial as what is possible and what is impossible. If you can close down the economy, and imagine an economy asleep, as we told, talked about it, or being put into hibernation. You can also imagine a better economy and a better society coming at the far side. So I think there's an amazing opportunity to reset this country, to think about what we could do. Because all the amazing things that we have thought about how you could run this country. Mm. I always think the way to run a country is imagine, imagine if you didn't inherit what the country was like, and you were given a blank page at the beginning of June of 2020, and you said, how would you do this? How would you operate your housing policy? How would you operate your infrastructure? How would you operate your train system? How would you operate your education system? If you were given a blank white piece of paper and said, start again, yeah. reset everything, this is the opportunity. Just think even the idea of the leaving cert being cancelled. This was sacrosanct to thousands, hundreds of thousands of Irish people, now it's gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I would say let's reframe the whole discussion today and this week about the reset. And part of that reset is exactly what you're talking about, which is that Twitter and Facebook and those big companies have said, we feel that we can operate remotely. Now, that's the first thing. Yeah. So if you imagine our entire industrial architecture, manufacturing architecture and service architecture is based on the factory. Okay. The factory is a deeply industrial revolution concept. Yeah. That you bring everybody into a factory. Yeah. You bring all the inputs There's a into production that. line. There's a production line. Yeah. You bring all the inputs in there. You make sure all your yeah. infrastructure is leading into this. And something happens in that factory. You merge people and product and infrastructure and capital. And at the far side, you create a product and you sell it to the rest of the yeah, world, right? Yeah. That's an unbelievably archaic view of the world. But it has remained incredibly popular in people's imaginations as to what work looks like and feels like and smells like. You know, but that's not the way it was before the Industrial Revolution where it was actually most of the world was based on farmers yeah. and small tradesmen yeah. doing their own thing, right? Bringing their produce into Bringing town. Their pro but working on their own. So if you think mm. about the world before the Industrial Revolution, you had the cobbler, you had the blacksmith, you had the money changer, you had this, that. they all worked in their own little place. And yeah. then they brought their produce to the market. And in the market, we exchanged, and that was it. So... The idea that in the 21st century, we should still have a factory-based approach to production is kind of bonkers. And COVID has, in a way, shone a light on that and yeah. said, you know what? You don't have to live in Drogheda or Dundalk or Menuth and drive into this place and sit in an expensive building, which is a cost. Yeah. 
stay there for 10 hours a day and drive back to the place that you're already mortgaged up the yin-yang to live in, even though you're only living there <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, a bleeding yeah. dormitory. Yeah. So I think this could be very interesting. Like, But it's only now that we can do that. I mean... Because of the internet. Because of the internet. Yeah. And, and of course, the well, we'll get onto it in a minute, I'm sure, but the fact that Facebook have said that they want their workers to work remotely and that's going to be great for possibly regenerating rural areas and, and all the rest but it's only possible now because of the internet but we need a good internet a good yes we do and, we, and it's, it's interesting you know in actual fact the big winner from this is the company that's providing broadband which we were very worried about because it actually seems a great deal it's a company called Grantham McCourt. That's right. right. So they're a yeah. winner in this. The big loser in this is commercial property in Dublin City, in Cork City, in Galway, wherever. And the reason they're the big losers is why would you incur this massive cost in your company for some glass and chrome building down the docklands mm. where you don't need it? Yeah. So... If you can, you should be shorting those REIT companies in Ireland that are highly leveraged to Irish commercial property. Shorting. Shorting, you should actually, shorting is a way in which you can actually sell the shares, right? right? What you can do is you can sell the shares of the company right now. It's basically called an option. So you have a put option and a call option. And you should operate those in order to preempt the fall in the share price, which is going to happen in those companies. Okay. Now, The challenge for Ireland is that we, for the last 10 years, have, well, not we have, the Dublin property market has been leveraged on expensive commercial property. So, like, for example, if you get the dart in from our neck of the woods, all you can see is those glass and chrome, incredibly expensive renting. That's over. That's. Do you think? Yeah, that's over. And it should be over. Look, you know, my deep, deep conviction is that land and property are absolutely useless in terms of the economy. These are assets that don't generate any product, don't generate any innovation, don't generate any creativity. Mm. They're they're a cost on society. And they're a deadweight cost that our government, not just our government, but governments all around Western Europe since the 1920s or 30s have totally and utterly manipulated the tax system to elevate the cost of land, and therefore the return of land, they've sold the banking system on to the construction Mm. industry, which means the banks only really lend against property. All of this has driven the price of property up, the cost of property up, and of course, if you drive the price of property up and the return to property, you drive down the return to wages, to labour, to work. So it's actually impoverishing intergenerationally. Irish people, British people, American people, Canadian people. And, of course, the country that stopped it all is Germany, interestingly. The reason that Germany is such a successful manufacturing economy is they don't waste money on property. Okay, the vast majority... What do you mean? I mean, they still have... Most Germans live in flats and they don't own them. Who owns them? Pension funds, German pension funds. Right. So the German individual, as in the renter is not paying through the nose for accommodation. Right. And the German pension fund equally is not getting what they call an economics super normal 
returns on property, they're getting average returns. So the so reason, they're more stable and secure. A, they're more stable and secure. B, the reason the German banks have more capital to invest in German industry is they're not investing it in property. It's so simple. Okay. And of course, we, on the other hand, have disguised this with some sort of nonsense about home-owning democracy and yeah. the price of land. And all it does is it sucks all the capital of the country in. It prejudices that capital to go towards property. It starves industry, manufacturing, startups of capital. And we have a crazy situation in Ireland where if you're a startup company with a good idea, you can't get any money. If you're somebody who wants to put your money into property, you get a tax break to do it. Bonkers. Bonkers, yeah. bonkers, bonkers. Yeah, yeah. So I <laughs> think maybe I we mean. could actually be at the reset. Property, have a second look at it, because people will not have to work in these big chrome well, and steel offices in town. There's, a huge, there's a, quite a number of implications of yeah. remote working. And, you know, as you just stated, it's the commercial property being one, but also a, a regeneration of rural areas, which is kind of yes. interesting and exciting and much needed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And much needed. And also, you know, Ireland is really funny. Think about it. This is the least densely populated country in Western Europe. Right. Because of the legacy of the famine. So had the famine not happened, population in this country would be, if it was to go through the same population increases, let's say Belgium or Holland, yeah. we'd have about 30 or 40 million people living here. Really? In terms of no, intensity. That's not right. Surely. It is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? We'd have a much higher population than Belgium. You could move then. But the point is, right? But if you were to if we had the same population density as England, which is a very, very densely populated yes, it country, is, yeah. we would have had starting with eight million in 1840, before the famine, we'd have a population certainly in the thirties of millions, which is quite we, normal. Right? Well, we don't. Yeah. So therefore... It's totally we have, unsustainable, that. Well, I'm not too sure. Because, like, if you, if you think of it, a large population makes things very efficient, makes you think about how you're going to live, makes you actually maybe respect the countryside a little bit more. And have Damn, significant... there wouldn't be any countryside for everyone. No, because if you, look at, well, if, you look at, if you look at heavily, densely populated countries, like, say, England, you take Holland, you take Belgium, you take Denmark, you take parts of West Germany... What they have is they say, you're going, you're going to live in this area and we're going to live intensively yeah, and with high death density here. But anyway, the point is, you're right. Rural Ireland could clearly regenerate itself on the basis, like, for example, the civil service. Forget Facebook. Yeah. The Department of Labor, the Department of Education, the Department of this, that, that. They don't have to be located in Dublin City. But wasn't this proposed before when they were going to... Yeah, but it never... It never Fulch Ireland were going to shoot down it never, to Mullingar happened, or somewhere. But it could happen. Yeah. It could happen. But again, the interesting thing about migration from the country is that, and I always feel this, John, that if you leave your country village, country town, and you migrate to Dublin, that is a transformative act. What you're doing is you're transforming yourself. You're saying... I do not want to be bound in by the boundaries of this town. Sure. No more than us leaving yeah. our neck of the woods and going to the States or going to England or whatever. You're basically, you're transforming yourself and there's a certain excitement, you know? I mean, I don't know, have you been watching normal people? No. And I'm not talking about... <laughs> I, 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 in a word, no. You're probably the it's only not my person, kind of you're thing. You're probably the only person in the whole... I was just saying to Lenny Abramson, who's a mate who directed it, I said, yeah. they had more sex in about a week... <laughs> 
in that thing that we ever had in Trinity in four years. <laughs> Outrageous carry on. But if you think of, you know, Connell... We were just a bit crap, though. Yeah, we were, yeah, exactly, exactly. But if you, if you think of Marianne and Connell, the two yeah. protagonists in this, you know, what you see is they're in school and they just want to get the hell out. They were in yeah, Sligo. Yeah, they yeah. want to get out and they want to reinvent themselves. They want to see the world, but they want to change their world experience. So... I accept, and you're saying rural Ireland could definitely do extremely well out of this different way of living yeah. and working. Yeah. But equally, there's always going to be people who just want to get the hell out. Oh, no, no, that's uh, absolutely. And and like you say, we were, I couldn't get in that boat fast enough. And it was to, to grow up yeah. and to experience the world. But then there were all these people who want to come back or people who are based in Dublin with families oh, yeah. in, in small flats or whatever who just want a bit more space, get out of the city, who, who aren't into city living. But then, of course, the other side of it as well is that what does that do to our cities, to Dublin, to Cork, to Galway, well, I Limerick? Think, you know, look, I was, I was doing something the other night with an All-Ireland group to talk about the future of the All-Ireland economy, which I believe is coming. You know, oh, yeah. I think this is going You know, an amazing thing to do would be to say, you know, let's relocate... Dublin Port and relocate Belfast yeah, Port. Yeah, this is something we spoke about before. But relocate yeah. also Belfast Port to a port equidistant to somewhere like, for example, Drogheda, John, or somewhere close to that where you have a deep water port, you create a new port. And what you're basically saying is infrastructurally, in terms of infrastructure, we are going to send a signal to everyone that the Dublin-Belfast corridor is going to be the heartbeat of this new island economy. Yeah. A united island. You liberate the real estate in Dublin Port, which is 600 acres. Yeah. You liberate the real estate in Belfast Port. You build something beautiful, a new city on both of those spaces, and you reorientate the entire country. You also say at the same time this broadband is going to be not only rolled out, but it's going to be high-speed fibre broadband to everywhere, giving people the opportunity to relocate. Yeah, well, it's... So my point is, and this is the reset, and we can come back to it, because the European Central Bank has given us this one-off opportunity to borrow for anything, Yeah, we should borrow at zero interest rates right now for significant infrastructural projects, not only to build the infrastructure, but to send a signal to the world that this is what this country is about. And actually, I've always felt, you know the way Roman emperors and great politicians signified the power and the ambition of their country through infrastructure? You can use infrastructure as almost a new flag for the country. And now, my point is, John, there is a massive reset opportunity here. What kind of opportunities are you talking about? Okay, the biggest thing right now in the European Union mm -hmm. is not Brexit and all that malarkey, right? What we've got to understand is that what is critical now to understanding Ireland's opportunity is understanding Italy's jeopardy. Italy is in a serious, serious bind. Right. Because Italy is a country that looks as if it's going bust. By that I mean... It's always looked like that, though. Yeah, it? but for a long, long time, the Italians were able to generate a small amount of growth. I mean, 
I feel very sorry for the Italians. Italy has been running what's called in economics a primary budget surplus for nearly two decades. That's nearly a generation. Right. That means that after they pay the interest bill on their huge national debt, yeah. in order to do that, to meet targets, they've got to be taking out money all the time. Italy has had austerity for the last 25 years. We, we kind of forget that. To the same level as, as here? Not only not to the same level as we had in that slump, yeah. but just grinding austerity all the time that every single year the Italians take out of the economy more in tax than they spend in public spending. Right. And that tax then goes to pay their national debt, which was incurred a long time ago. And because the rate of growth has been slower and slower and slower, every year they're pushing a bigger and bigger rock up the hill. And I really feel for them because Italy is, you know, it's an amazing country. Yeah. yeah. But geostrategically in Europe, it is the most important country at the moment. At it the always, moment? It always has been. Yeah. Right? But at the moment, because... Not Germany. No, because Germany can pay its way, right? Right. Italy, the bond market in Italy, if the ECB were tomorrow to say we will no longer support European governments and buy all their debt, Italy would go bust. And if Italy goes bust and Italy has another crisis, Salvini of the Northern League will get into power. And what Salvini wants to do is take Italy out of the European Union, get the lira back in and restart the Italian economy at a rate of competitiveness at about 40% cheaper than Germany. That's what he believes. And, and, and right. would that work, do you think? It could work. It could work. The so why thing, don't they just do that? Because the Italian establishment is locked in to the European Union. They don't want to do this just yet. But you take what the European Union wants to do. The European Union wants to avoid that like the plague. So of what course, they've yeah. done is they've basically grabbed the European Central Bank by the balls and said, finance everything. Yeah. Because we don't want a crisis in Italy. Right? Yeah. Now, cough. Cough. <laughs> exactly. Do it again. Go higher. Right. Okay. So imagine the poor Italian. It's a lovely visual image, right? That crisis gives us cover to do whatever we want because the cheap money that is really being issued to ensure that Italy doesn't default mm -hmm. is available to everyone. Yeah. And yeah. so therefore, if we wanted to build these things, these infrastructure projects, we can finance them all. And the ECB will backstop it because we can issue bonds against the infrastructure that the ECB have said, you know what, we'll pay for everything. Yeah. That's where we should be arguing against these austerity jihadis who are basically jumped up accountants. And as I've always said, accountants have no business in economics because the economy doesn't have a balance sheet like a small right. company. Right. And particularly an economy in a monetary union where you don't even print your own currency, you are part of a much greater balance sheet. So what's the fear? The fear is, I'm back to our friend from last week, the fear is fear itself. The fear is conventional wisdom. The fear is generals fighting the last war. Right. The fear is not thinking and replacing shibboleths for hard thinking. Shibboleths were a tribe in the Bible, the shibboleths, right? Right. Because we forget when Jesus was knocking around, there was all sorts of competing 
religions and sects yeah. and ideas. And one outfit were called the Shibboleths, right? And their idea was... It's a great name. It's a great name, right? But their whole idea was that if you knew the Shibboleth, which was a secret code, and you repeated it often enough, right. you would go to heaven. It's like repeating mantras. So a right. shibboleth is a mantra. So you had the mantra and you'd go around repeating the mantra and repeating the mantra was enough. But if we allow mantras or shibboleths to replace hard thinking, then you end up in a situation where people think, you can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? Oh, well, because your man said before, you can't do that. And the reason a lot of the Irish economic fraternity is captured by mantras is there is a legacy of the 1980s where this country nearly went bust, mm. where we borrowed money in the 1970s, we had our own currency, we had two or three very bad leaders, yeah. we had a very, very unimpressive, undynamic, backward economy, and we went bust. And everyone associates that with, we borrowed money, we went bust, right? And that legacy is still there. Yeah. But that's 50 years ago nearly, or 40 years ago. Now the economy is much more dynamic, much more plugged yes. into the world, yeah. Yeah. much more multicultural, multilingual, highly productive, much, much richer, much more resourceful, much more flexible. And we should have a similar optimistic view towards how we finance everything. I, I understand that, but that obviously requires new political thinking. And we're going to have possibly a new government in the, the next month or so. So do you think that's the, the opportunity or do you think... Well, we might, John, have a new government in the next month or two. Or we might not. We might even have an election. Oh, oh, really? So, you remember our mate, Doctor, I always like to call him Doctor, Doctor Kevin Cunningham. Right. The pollster. Yes, he was brilliant. Brilliant guy, right? He has a very interesting new idea. He's been digging deep into data on polls, not just in Ireland, but around the world. The impact on COVID. Right. We were talking about the impact of COVID on the reset. He's talking about the impact on COVID on a reset of politics. It's fascinating stuff. Right. We'll get him up on the line. He's down in Wicklow, isolating Kevin Cunningham. Now, back in late January, when the polls started to indicate that Sinn Féin might do well, all the commentators said, well, this is a mistake in the polling. It can't possibly be. But one man, Dr... Kev Cunningham, maybe the finest pollster in Europe, certainly the finest pollster in this island, said on this podcast, Sinn Féin will get between 36 and 37 seats. Now, even the most optimistic political commentator for Sinn Féin was saying 26, 27, 28 maximum. Kev was absolutely spot on there. He's now joining me again. He has another piece of data-driven analysis that I find fascinating. Kev, how are you? Great. I'm absolutely fantastic. You are holed up there in Wicklow. You've been there for the whole lockdown, have you? Pretty much, yeah. Since the start of March, I decided to do a bit of virus prediction for a couple of days and uh, made my way down here as a result. But listen, Kev, tell me about this idea called Rally the Flag Effect in politics. Tell me what it's all about, what is happening, not just in Ireland, all over the world as a result of COVID and what it might lead to politically. The rally round the flags, yeah. So there's a guy, a political scientist called John Mueller, who in 1970 discovered this effect. So he identified the fact that 
in a time of crisis, in a major international crisis, that people tended to kind of rally behind the leader, rally behind the president in particular in this case, when a particular um, crunch point came, particularly in an international crisis. So this has happened a number of times over the years. The Iran hostage crisis is one for Jimmy Carter, the uh, Operation Desert Storm for George Bush Sr. George W. Bush, following the 2001 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers, his poll surge, like all of these guys, rocketed, basically. I think the George Bush one was the biggest one, in fact, um, when he went almost overnight from 55% approval to 90%. And, you know, in some cases, these approval ratings have lasted for quite a long time. In fact, his lasted a whole two years almost before he was back down to 55%. He then invaded Iraq, and then he was back up at 70%. And then they captured Saddam Hussein a couple of months later, and then his, his opinion polls improved again. So it's just this idea that this international crisis, that the, the public kind of rally around the flag. There's an idea, some people think it's because the general public, and this is certainly what Mueller's uh, thing was, was that people feel threatened, you know? So they suddenly need a kind of a strong leader to kind of give them reassurance. I want to go back to, to, to other examples, but in the Irish context now, Fine Gael and Leo Varadkar have had a massive boost in the polls. Oh, massive boost, massive boost. If you go back to March 12th, when Leo Varadkar stood outside, I can't remember the name of the house, in New York, and he gave that speech where he talked about, we will prevail, Ireland is a great country, and so on. It's that kind of reassurance that people were looking for in the context of this massive fear of, of what is going to happen. And leaders all around the world did the exact same thing on the same day. In fact, Donald Trump, his approval rating, in spite of having wildly different approach to the particular problem, he achieved his best ever approval rating. Um, that particular week. So did Emmanuel Macron. Well, Emmanuel Macron's wasn't his best ever, but he certainly improved. Uh, Conte, so the Italian prime minister, the French prime minister, the Swedish prime minister, pretty much every single one of these guys, their approval ratings jumped, you know, in this in this particular context of, of reassuring the public about what was going to happen and everything was going to be okay and we're a great country and all that sort of stuff. So, that's one of the things that, that, that these particular things like, like COVID-19 has created this rally round the flag effect that you see in approval ratings. Now, can I just stop you there and can tell me, Kev, yeah. what has Varadkar gone from? Because there was a feeling, there wasn't, people had just a feeling that after the election, okay, and I want to go back to 1982 and I want to frame this in the context of what happened in Britain because I think it's very important and it's very interesting as to what might happen here in Ireland in the next two yeah. months. After the election, there was a sense that Faradkar himself and his team had kind of lost their mojo. They were very downbeat. They were down in the polls. At what's, where were they in the polls before COVID and where are they now? Before COVID, Fine Gael were on 20-21%. That's what they got in the general election. Any poll before March pretty much put them at the same sort of figure, maybe slightly improved. After March 12th, there's been uh, two, and there's another poll this weekend, which have them up at 36%. So they have a 15-point jump, which is enormous. And in fact, that's the biggest poll jump of any governing political party in Europe in this crisis. Okay, well, let us park that. That's an 
incredibly interesting statistic. Let us go back to 1982 because I am old enough to remember the Falklands War, okay, to remember what it felt like, to remember what the jingoism in the UK was like, to remember the way Mrs. Thatcher framed the entire Falklands invasion, counter-invasion, whatever you'd like to call it, the the flotilla going down to the South yeah. Atlantic. Explain to me, number one, what was going on in UK politics in 82 and why it's similar to Irish politics now. And number two, what happened thereafter. And number three, how Mrs. Thatcher took that poll lead and made it stick. Right. Well, 1982, obviously the year in which, as you said, Argentina invaded the Falklands and, and Britain responded in April of that year, that's when the whole thing kicked off. At that exact point in time, the Tories were joint, you know, equal in polling figures to Labour and the Liberal SDP alliance. It was the first, in January of that year, the Liberal SDP alliance was on 40%. It was, 1982 was a unique year. In that particular year, the Liberal SDP alliance had rose and suddenly challenged the two-party system that Britain had had since the war and even much before that. It was the first time these two parties were being challenged because there was massive polarisation. If you remember, Michael Foote uh, on the far left and Margaret Thatcher was very much on the far right of her party. Uh, the Liberal SDP emerged in this context and were polling really, really well. There was a massive shake-up in British politics at this particular time. People weren't sure what way they were going. Very similar to Irish politics, I remember, because earlier this year, there's the Sinn Féin emerged as a significant force. And people weren't sure what's the party best position to oppose Sinn Féin. But that's the context in which Margaret Thatcher found herself at the start of the Falklands War. She went from 33%, the Tories went from 33% in April to six weeks later being on 51% of the poll and completely wiping out the Liberal SDP Alliance Party. So this party that suddenly emerges as a big threat that might take Labour or the Tories or, or have its pick suddenly got completely vanquished because the Tories suddenly found themselves in this situation, this polarising situation where lots of people rallied behind the government and Margaret Thatcher and she basically took all those kind of floating voters. The, the idea that uh, the people that you are more likely to convince in a context like this are the people who are unaligned. And that is what Irish politics looks like right now. But in terms of British politics, what that meant was that from that point on until at least 2010, uh, the Liberal Party were done. They were out of the picture, really. But obviously, this is a huge challenge for Fianna Fáil. OK, so, so what you're saying is that Fianna Fáil today, if the rally the flag becomes the framing for Irish politics during and maybe after the COVID crisis. What you're saying is that what happened to the Liberal Party in England, the Liberal SDP alliance, I remember these sort of this, this new party. What you're saying, this could happen to one of the oldest parties in Ireland, Fianna Fáil, because it's Fianna Fáil that stands to lose most from this reframing. Yes, absolutely. When we've looked at... I did an exit poll for UCD in the most recent general election as well. And there's a clear thing that's going on in Irish politics, massive polarisation. For the first time, there's a clear working class and middle class party. And Fianna Fáil 
don't have either of these groups. They don't have people who are happy with the economy or people who are pissed off with the economy. They kind of have a bunch of people who support Fianna Fáil because they've always supported Fianna Fáil. Whereas for Sinn Féin and Fine Gael, their voters are very clear on what they look and believe about the country and the direction it should go. So explain to me now, I mean, let, let's move forward. At the moment, Fianna Fáil are in negotiations, Fine Gael are in negotiations, the Green Party. I mean, if you're right and this sticks, Fine Gael have two interesting options. One is to play incredibly hardball in the negotiations because they know they can walk away mm. because they're doing so well in the polls. The other thing is that Fine Gael could engineer an election, a snap election, even in a world of social distancing, to profit profoundly from this rally around the flag idea. And we could have an election in the very near future. Yeah, I mean, they were clearly trying to understand the feasibility of an election within social distancing. I mean, it is, it's very possible. The real difficulty is for, for Fianna Fáil, they're currently polling now as a result of all this, uh, 16%. They've lost support, not just to Fine Gael in the context of this, but one of the reasons why Sinn Féin are still up at 27%, still well above their, their poll figure uh, that they got in the general election, is because they're also peeling off votes from Fianna Fáil. Now, how do Fianna Fáil win both, both back from Fine Gael and Sinn Féin at the same time? If those two parties decide to try to polarize the electorate, then they'll have, you know, then they'll both gain from it. So you can't, it's hard not to see them doing it. And it's not impossible, although it might seem unlikely right now, but it's not impossible for Ireland to end up with a very polarized two-party system. I know we have proportional representation, and that usually ends up with a number of parties, but Malta is the only other country with the exact same electoral system. And as a result of a series of events, they've ended up with the most polarized political system perhaps on the planet, to the extent that in Malta, they've two parties massively polarized, the Labour Party and the National Party, completely different. They've regularly had political violence in the past, but it's so polarized in Malta that turnout in Malta is higher than many countries that have uh, compulsory voting, such as Argentina and Chile. So um, everyone everyone is so lot. committed. And just before we go, yeah. another country that has had three elections in 18 months is Israel. They've managed to put together a coalition this week with the great survivor, Bibi Netanyahu, back on top. He's not yet in jail. He's not yet in court. He's threatening to annex the West Bank. I mean, these things happen. And the interesting thing about the Israeli politics was that the party that was so long and so heavily identified with the Israeli state, the Labour Party, is now gone. Fianna Fáil has been for so long heavily identified with the Irish state. Are you saying it could be now gone? Well, your point about Israel is very interesting as well, because there there is this other aspect of the rally. You're talking about um, annexing the West Bank, I think. or was I think it? Netanyahu wants to do that by the 1st of July. I mean, it's really extreme stuff. So the, there is a there is the dark, what, what, what might be thought of as the dark side of this uh, rally around the flags, which is very important, to be honest. A strongly related theme is what's called the diversionary war theory, where uh, leaders use international conflicts to boost support as you know the the rally around the flags effectively is 
to hide from domestic problems. So it's almost like if you're having a, a problem at home, I guess, that uh, going into battle abroad kind of maintains your standing. So it's <laughs> almost like it's, the, these governments are incentivized to attack other countries from this theory. Well, on the basis that the chances of Ireland attacking other countries are, I think, pretty modest. Well, uh, yeah. But let me come back. Let me just come back to the Fianna Fáil question. Do yeah. you think from all your understanding of polls and you're watching the numbers and the way people are behaving, that Fianna Fáil now not only have a serious problem, but it's hard to see a set of circumstances where they can actually turn this around. Well, yeah. So here's the, here's the other problem for Fianna Fáil. In the last government, the, the government before the last one, uh, when Fine Gael and Labour went in together, if you remember that one, a lot of members of the public thought that Labour politicians were Fine Gael politicians. Brendan Howland was a particular example where you would say that people thought he was a Fine Gaeler because they would see him associated with this party. What Fianna Fáil will struggle to do in government with Fine Gael is to make people know that they're different and, and recognise Fianna Fáil as having this stamp and visibility. It's very hard to be visible in government when you're joining, you know, Leo Varadkar and Owen Murphy and all these guys who've been there, who people recognise as the Fine Gael ministers. It's very difficult for Fianna Fáil to kind of have that visibility. And, and they're not holding any of the cards at the minute because the party's down at 16% and Fine Gael are up at 36 Interesting stuff. Listen, Kev, as always, thank you so much. Enjoy yourself thank down you. in Wicklow. And when we get yeah. uh, when you get back up to the Dunleary neck of the woods, we'll go for a jar. Yes, absolutely. So that was Kevin Cunningham there, a really interesting, interesting political analyst. He's a guy who looks at the data rather than what I would say the Leinster House gossip of who's doing what. He looks at the numbers and he makes predictions. I'll just remind you, his prediction on the election last February was spot on. So always, if you hear him on the airwaves, jot down, take a few notes. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. 
As you know, every week we have our Shumpeter slot. We're trying to focus on and tell the story of, and actually, actually tell the world about, companies that have managed to change in the face of COVID. This week we have a company called Dynamic Events. I have Niall O'Connor of Dynamic Events on the line. Niall, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Not at all, our pleasure. Uh, tell me, Niall, what does Dynamic Events do? What were you doing before COVID first? Okay, well, we are um, we were established in 1996 by our MD, Richard Phelan. He's um, well-renowned in the event industry. We provide team building and manage corporate events for some of the world's biggest organizations and uh, companies in the world. So we have 12 staff. Last year, we delivered in the region of 450 events. All of these events were face-to-face business events. I think it's actually been about 12 weeks to the day since we did, delivered our last face-to-face business event. So so you were the ultimate pre-COVID face-to-face non-social distancing exactly. company. Yeah. Like this year started off no different, I suppose. Our calendars were filling up nicely. Then at the end of, I think it was the end of late February, our books were just wiped. All of our business reduced to zero pretty much overnight. Any events that were booked in were either cancelled or postponed indefinitely. And any opportunities that we were chasing kind of disappeared. So we're um, now providing virtual events, virtual team building events, just to help that kind of workers to stay connected while they work from home. And tell me, how is it going for you? How's the switch gone? Uh, it's going really well. It's been difficult, I suppose. To turn your business around overnight wasn't easy, but we had a great, we have a great team of people with us and we've had technology on our side because we've sort of been investing in technology for a long time now, probably about four years. So um, that's the first thing we did. We, ident- we identified what we had. We had a great team of people, really smart, enthusiastic people, and we had the technology. And then when you combine the two, we kind of had a new way of doing business. So we've done in the region of over 30 events since, since lockdown began. And we've done them globally. So, you know, we're a company that traditionally would, would work in the Irish market. And now we're locked down to two or five kilometers from our homes and we're delivering these events globally now. So I suppose you could say the pandemic has been detrimental on, on our business and on our, our industry, but it's, it's given us this new opportunity now where we can actually export our experiences to all around the world. So it's, it's exciting at the same time. Well, that's great stuff. Well, listen, Niall, best of luck with everything. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for Cheers. having us. Cheers. Not at all. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Niall O'Connor of Dynamic Events there. So, Mike, just before we finish up, the one thing I do want to talk to you about is globalization and Ireland's role in globalization. What's been going on since COVID, as we spoke about last week and the week before, is the truncating of supply chains and stuff. So, where do we sit in this new globalization? No, it's 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 a really interesting issue because here's the thing, John. If you look back at history and you see these big events, particularly pandemics, yeah. they really do change the way the world works. Yeah. Now, what we're saying, if you look at what's happening between America and China this week alone in Hong Kong, a lot of people expected Taiwan to be the theater of conflict between mm. America and China. People also felt that those islands off the coast of Japan, that the Japanese thought they were going to be Japanese and always were Japanese, was going to be the issue. I don't think anybody felt that the issue between America and China could be Hong Kong. Hong Kong is kind of sacrosanct. Hong Kong is is a special place. But that's been building up for years. It's been building up for years and now it's coming to a head. Yeah. So no matter how things pan out, I think we're looking down the barrel of Cold War II between China and America. Right. And I think countries will take stands as to where you're standing. 
And I also believe that lots of American companies that had extended their supply chains into China will not only come back to the United States, yeah. but will come back to friendly countries. Yeah. Countries that they regard as within the American orbit. Now, one of the things for many years as to why Ireland was so easy for Americans is that Americans felt at home here. You know, American yeah, executives yeah, yeah. could come, it's not, it's not that alien, it's not that different, we speak English, etc. So we will still remain that country. Mm. But what we need to do is position ourselves for, I think, a big change in the way the world trades, right? Now, the way I look at it, I look at these big historical episodes, but think about the Black Death, right? We go back to the Black Death, right? 1347. 1347. There we are, you there's and me. There's an anchor year, if there any. There's an anchor year. Rarely thought of that. We're sitting in a Genovese boat coming through the Bosphorus and there's, there's a rat in the hull and it looks a little bit worrying. And we're thinking, ooh, I wonder, has that guy got the plague? And then you turn black and you die, right? Okay, so imagine that, okay? Yeah. But think I'm about there, think there. about what happens after the Black Death, right? And this is the, how pandemics change trade and trading relations and international relations, right? The Black Death comes all the way through Europe. The Europeans, and I'm talking about Italians in the main here, yeah, Genovese, Florentines, Venetians, and people from the Holy Roman Empire, the yeah. the tail end of the Charlemagne Empire, after the Black Death, something really interesting happens, which is that Europe reorientates itself away from where that disease came from. So for thousands of years, Europeans were trading with the East. Yeah. Of course, the whole Marco Polo thing is a great example of how Europeans have been fascinated by China, by India, yeah. all this place. But two things happen. The Black Death happens and the Ottoman Empire decides to close the Silk Road and the Spice Road to Europeans. Right. Right? Because of conflict between the Ottomans and the Europeans. Yeah. That hadn't been the case before that because the Byzantines were running that part of the world. So the Europeans, and this is the interesting thing, two generations or three generations after the Black Death, Columbus lands in what is now Haiti. Yeah. Hispaniola. Is there a connection? Yes, there is. Go on. This is the interesting thing. So the Europeans say, we're not going to trade with those people who brought us disease and are frankly a different culture to us. Yeah. Now think China in this framing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And Europeans and Americans. China. Exactly. So what the Europeans do is they say, we want Chinese spices. We want Indian spices and silk. We want particularly pepper from Borneo. People forget that Borneo was the prize at the time, right? Right, okay. But we don't want to go through the Ottoman Empire. We don't want to go through Turkey. We don't want anything to do with those people. And frankly, we don't want anything to do with the Arabs either. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to invest in technology, ships, to try and figure out, can we get to the spices by going the other way? That's what financed Columbus. Right. And what financed Columbus was a European rejection of the East in terms of going overland on the spice routes and the Silk Road. And the Europeans saying, if the world is round, then by going the other way, we'll end up there left to right rather than right to left. 
Yeah, it was a it was a big geographical experiment. Exactly. And who financed that? Bankers and financiers and speculators and entrepreneurs, right? Technology people. Yeah. You know, we think yeah. that, you know, Facebook and your man, what's his name, who calls his sons weird names? Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. <laughs> They're new. They're not new at all. There were dudes financing Columbus who were much more entrepreneurial, yeah. right? And the chances of Columbus finding India going the other way were much more insignificant than your man and his Tesla laid an electric car. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, right? And Magellan down to Portugal and around the far side of the world. So what I love about this is that the Black Death kicks off a series of events that end up with the Renaissance, with the financing of Columbus, mm-hmm. with the Reformation, with the printing press. We forget that a hundred years after the Black Death, in 1450, Gutenberg finds the printing press and changes the world. And it's all to do with how we reacted to a pandemic. And how we reacted to the pandemic was saying, we're going to change the way we think. We're not going to trade with those people who gave us the disease from whence it came. We're going to use technology and finance to create a new world. And in so doing, we financed Columbus, who was from Genoa. Think about it. He wasn't from Spain, he was from Genoa, financed by Genovese financiers in the pay of the Spanish king. And one or two generations after the Black Death, we begin the process of changing the world. And when Columbus arrived in America, he arrived in America. Why? Not to discover America, but to circumvent the trading relationships that had undermined the Europeans by giving them a disease. And that's what it was all about. This one's for Patreons. And if you're not a Patreon, sign up now because we have a new addition to the podcast, which comes from lots of people asking me questions every week on Patreon about various things in the economy, in the society, in finance, in economic history, etc. It's called Ask Mac. And it's basically your chance to ask me the questions and then us to have a dialogue and a chat and a conversation together. So you can find it at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams, Ask Mac. Looking forward to chatting to you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.